another day of practice. This can be a kind of refuge for us if we are able to drop back. It's just another day of practice. Maybe this one was terrific. Maybe some parts were, but some parts were a struggle. Or maybe it was mostly felt like a struggle to you. Just another day of practice. (coughs) Once we orient towards practice rather than resulting, we have a much wider pasture in which to have our experience. It is so easy for us to unconsciously start to measure, to be resulting. Well, I want that samadhi, or I want that mindfulness, or I really want to understand this. And we, 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 we are trying to be a good yogi and so forth, non-clinging, and yet. And so, what could possibly balance that? Is this commitment that what I do is practice. I trust that I can practice. How the results turn out are beyond my control. But I can more or less, some of the time, really know that I'm practicing. Space, room around the experience. Tonight we're going to be looking at the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are taught at times as a practice rather than as some sort of a description that's simply to be understood as a description of the way it is. And so taking this idea that Oh, I am committed to my practice. Let's open to the Four Noble Truths in that way, that what if the Four Noble Truths can become just another form of my practice? Not the Four Noble Truths as resulting, but is that I will open to, understand, be receptive to the Four Noble Truths as a way of practice as part of my practice. And as you'll see, there's actually quite specific instructions treating the Four Noble Truths as practice. As we do this this evening, staying in our body as best we're able, I'm playing a certain role tonight. I'll do my best to stay in my body. You're playing a certain role tonight. You, is the request, the suggestion, you stay in your body so that you're hearing Dhamma in this embodied awareness rather than up in the old coconut. (laughs) So this this, uh, tendency of mind to conceptualize the Dhamma talk rather than have the felt sense of what does this really feel to me? What's the implications in my life? How does it it affect my heart? 
What is my intuition? What is my belly telling me about these four truths? This we get by staying grounded, grounded. Earth element, here, now. So the Four Noble Truths are said to have been the Buddha's very first teaching and which he taught to the five companions that he had practiced with for many years. And it's said that this is the, the, the one teaching that contains all of the teachings of the Buddha. And in one sense, everything else is like an exposition, an explanation of the Four Noble Truths, a kind of unfolding of it. The Four Noble Truths are also the shared among the different uh, nanas, the different uh, kinds of Buddhism, all share the Four Noble Truths. And so it's a very uh, central teaching to understanding the Buddha's approach to finding freedom, to finding well-being. And as part of this, we employ the use of mindfulness just as we've done in everything else. I'd like to create a, a addition to this uh, the definition, in addition to the definition of the mindfulness that we've been building. And this is in relation to as mindfulness matures. So mindfulness starts out with being present for what's happening in the moment it's happening, in the way uh, Andre was describing it the other night, and, and then uh, it's been added to by others since then. But as mindfulness keeps uh, developing in us, we also start to have, uh, we're mindful not just of what's arising in the moment, in our heads, from any of the sense gates, including the mind gate is the sixth sense gate, any of the sense gates, but also what I call the surround. That is that uh, uh, there's, uh, I, I realize that, uh, oh, my knee's hurting, but the surround is one of, of this feeling of wanting or rejecting or pushing away. That, that, that this moment of mindfulness, as, as we get uh, more settled, there's, there's, uh, it's more contextual in that sense. There's kind of more information that comes in. We start out with bare attention and uh, in relation to the, uh, all the different body mindfulness practices that have been introduced and will be introduced. We then go to the Vedna, the pleasant and unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, that will be uh, talked about in, in uh, some detail later on as, as the second establishment or foundation of mindfulness. And again, there's a bare attention to it. It's just pleasant or unpleasant and so forth. And then the same with uh, the chitta, the mind states and the emotions associated with mind states where we're just bare attention till we get to that fourth foundation. And then we filter it through all of these different uh, lists of dhamma, these other from five aggregates to the hindrances, which you uh, uh, explored last night, to the awakening factors, uh, all the way up to the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are the last of the dhammas of, of establishing mindfulness. It's the last thing that we're instructed 
to develop. We start out with just this body and we go through all of these different things and the very, very last thing is the Four Noble Truths. As we're going through this, we're also starting to be more aware of, of our patterns, aware of, of the context. And so uh, in, including uh, in, in when you're being mindful of something, so um, uh, restlessness, one of the hindrances, or um, uh, uh, gratitude, that there is a, a sense of the thereness, the felt sense of gratitude, this felt sense of restlessness. It's, it's not just a label. It's a direct experience of what's arising in the mind. It's more and more an embodied experience. And that embodied experience uh, provides what I'm referring to as the surround. It gives a more richness of experiences I was referring to this morning. So just uh, opening to that in that way. The Four Noble Truths start with the truth that there is dukkha. There is dukkha. The second noble truth is that there is a cause of dukkha. The third noble truth is that there is a cessation of dukkha. And the fourth noble truth is that there is a path that leads to the end of dukkha. Those are the basic four truths. In the Samyutta Nikaya, one of the oldest texts in the Pali Canon of the Buddha's teachings, those four noble truths are presented as 12 insights that are to be realized. Each of the four noble truths having three insights that are to be realized. So the, uh, the structure of these, of these uh, three insights for each truth is that it first starts out with a reflection. So there is dukkha. So we reflect on that. Is that my experience? That there is dukkha? So we think about that. Do I, uh, uh, has my life been without dukkha? Do I know someone whose life's been without dukkha? And if, if you're a Greek scholar, you think about, what did Socrates think about dukkha, maybe? But whatever it may be, you are reflecting. You're coming to, um, uh, you're coming to a, a kind of comprehension of it as, as uh, something being named. And then the second insight of, of every truth is uh, an, the, an insight that is to be obtained by practice. So the second insight is one of practice, and this is where the practice comes in. So with dukkha, that, that dukkha is to be understood, or dukkha is to be penetrated. This is the second insight. So it's not just that we're supposed to conceptually recognize dukkha, but we are to, in my language, feel the ouch of dukkha. To actually have a personal experience of dukkha. And that's how we really know that it's true. 
the first we can agree with that, yeah, this makes sense. Yeah, that's what I believe. But feeling the ouch of dukkha takes away any doubt that there is dukkha. And it also brings us fully into the life experience that we have. The fully full life experience that we have in this very moment, in this next moment, and the next moment. Because we are moving into the moment, the immediacy of our experience to feel dukkha or the absence of dukkha in this very moment. So we're, we're getting out again, out of, getting out of the headspace and dropping in to the felt experience of our lives in this way. Then the third insight of each truth is a kind of uh, recollection uh, where one, one uh, recognizes and, in my language, integrates what one has experienced through reflection and through practice. And that is, in the instance of the first noble truth, that, that dukkha has been understood. That dukkha has been understood. So let's go through this with dukkha. First of all, what is dukkha? The, my favorite uh, transcription comes from uh, the, uh, uh, poly words that have to do with an axle wheel, the wheel of an uh, axle that, that doesn't, it doesn't fit quite in right, like in a, a chariot. So it doesn't, it doesn't, although the chariot will move, it doesn't, it squeaks, it bumps, it's rough, it doesn't, it's, uh, it's this sense of, of not being totally reliable, uh, not being totally satisfactory. So we mostly hear dukkha as suffering, but there's so many other words that are used. Unsatisfactory, unreliable, stressful. Uh, some people now really like this word stressful. I, I much prefer unreliable unsatisfactory personally, but you find what it means to you. And uh, as uh, Venerable Analio recommends, that oftentimes it's better just to leave it as dukkha and not try to translate it. The reason it's worth naming these different words is because the, uh, the feeling of, of dukkha is not uh, just in terms of something really terrible or something like that. But the whole experience of this realm, the very nature of this realm. When we look at Dukkha and the, the, in terms of the traditional teachings, it's described as uh, three, one of three kinds of Dukkha. Dukkha Dukkha, the kind of Dukkha that comes from physical pain or emotional pain, this uh, uh, not getting, not getting what we want, or losing, and so forth, something like that. That there's there's physical and emotional pain, dukkha, and uh, that's part of this experience in this realm. The Buddha was not exempt. The Buddha's back hurt all the time. The Buddha would often say, uh, "Ananda, you give you give the teaching this evening. I need to rest." He was not, as long as he was in an embodied form, he had body dukkha. His mind would not be disturbed by that because he's a Buddha. But nonetheless, 
the existence of the dukkha is there. Very um, worthy of reflection, the truth of that. So this is the first kind of, of dukkha, the, the dukkha dukkha. The second kind of dukkha is the dukkha that arises because things are always changing. And how oh, uneasy that makes us. You can never brush your teeth and say, well, I'll brush my teeth. Thank goodness I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> ah, wash the dishes. Don't have to wash another dish. Things are always changing. It doesn't mean that all change is dukkha. But change, change itself, because some of the change we don't want at all. And so the, 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 this unreliable nature of this realm that it's always changing creates a kind of dukkha. So you're sitting there and you're having a good sit and then your mind just starts acting out on you. It's dukkha. Uh, You're sitting there and uh, the mind's so still and now the ankle's starting to hurt. Oh no, it's just dukkha. The third kind of dukkha is the kind of dukkha that is the most uh, subtle, but it's, it's the dukkha that comes from the fact that even in our, our uh, best moment, if we're really careful, we have uh, a great difficulty finding a self in there, finding a there there to the moment because of the five aggregates that every moment's made up of these, of these this series of experiences from contact all the way through consciousness, contact, perception, feeling, mental impression, and, and consciousness, there's, um, there is a, uh, there's an unease to our ego system that is trying to take care of us, that uh, ego system meaning our executive functioning system that, um, that started developing early on for each of us and has learned how to you know, take care of us to make sure we get fed and stay safe and so forth and um, make decisions about what we think will bring happiness in life and what will not. This, this uh, ego function takes it as its job, rightfully so, taking care of ourselves. The truth of dukkha is quite challenging for that. One of the things that uh, people sometimes uh, say when they've come to their first retreat and we talk about dukkha, they will come into a practice meeting and say, finally, somebody's telling the truth. Finally, somebody's saying the way it is. That this, this uh, unease, this unsatisfactoriness is part of life. It does not mean that all of life is dukkha, that all of life is unsatisfactory. That is a big, big misunderstanding and doesn't actually match your own experience anyway. But we can collapse into thinking that. But that's a collapse. That's, a, that's an abandonment of, of, of uh, balanced perspective. It's a kind of delusion. It's a spiraling down into kind of uh, hopelessness, hopelessness, 
uh, nihilism and so forth. So dukkha is simply part of experience. It's interwoven with all of experience. It's not separate from this experience. So our, uh, one thing that we can uh, ask ourselves, do I secretly believe that dukkha is a mistake? So if I'm experiencing dukkha during a sit, do I think I'm doing something wrong? You may well be at times and not even notice it. Oh, well, this part of my life hasn't gone very well. You know, that's just, there's, I, you, there may be shame around that or guilt around that. It's dukkha. It's just dukkha. Some things turn out well and some don't. We do the best we're able in any given time under those conditions. And it turns out how it turns out. And sometimes it's not so satisfactory. And that's dukkha. So the, the movement of understanding is to be able to feel the dukkha in the moment. And often that means not being so caught in our narrative about what's wrong. Oh, if that ankle wasn't hurting, oh no, it's going to start hurting all this time and just when I'm getting settled. So we're starting to do what we call papancha, make a story. And it's just one explosive thought after another. If we can just stop and go, oh, this is dukkha. Dukkha feels like this. Things are going along and now they're not going so well. Dukkha. It's just dukkha. So often when we go to our narrative, all of our judgment and all of our inner comment and all of our emotional uh, reactivity to our experience, whether it's sitting, walking, remembering the past, thinking about the future, we, we, we fall into uh, to the narrative and we so identify with the experience that we miss the wisdom that comes from, it's just dukkha. That dukkha is there. We're being awash in dukkha, but we're not having that, that, uh, that second insight of the first noble truth, that this is dukkha, that dukkha's like this. We're, we're so enmeshed in our story that we're actually not able to feel our own experience to be, uh, present for our own experience in a way that is empowering, that once again creates this larger pasture for our experience to gallop around in in this way. So this is the this is the way we practice. We feel the ouch for the second insight of the first noble truth. The third insight of this knowing we know in the course of this retreat we can uh, reflect repeatedly on our experience around dukkha in this retreat. We can just reflect on it and go, yeah, I, I know much more about this than I did. Yeah, I know how my mind does get reactive. Uh, that guy the other night was talking about the narrative and all. Yeah, I, I, kind, of, I kind of understand that a bit. So we start to see and start to be able to incorporate in our ongoing life moments this that 
dukkha is part of what I know. I can have a, um, I can meet life with a degree of confidence because I'm able to see somewhat more clearly around this. I can, I can see this as part of experience. It's just part of experience. The narrative is coming about because of conditions in my mind around the hindrances and so forth. But the dukkha is just the dukkha. I was sitting in this very room. I don't remember now. 17 years ago or some number like that. And uh, the Venerable Sumedho uh, had been uh, uh, leading us in a, a, a teacher group. We had come to teach us as teachers and we had had a teacher retreat with him. And then he turned around and did a 10-day retreat in this hall. And um, I was sitting back over there and the, the, the left side from the stage side. And he said, uh, well, so in this retreat, what we're going to focus on is the Four Noble Truths. Now, by that point, you know, I'd heard the Four Noble Truths taught a fair number of times. And so I'd been so impressed with him and so inspired by him. And I was waiting for some big, huge insights, you know, and just leaning a bit into the moment. And he said that, and I was going, uh, uh. But it's tomato. It's worth it. And then he proceeded to teach these 12 insights. And it changed my practice. Because once I understood the idea of treating the, the Four Noble Truths as a practice, and since the Four Noble Truths are the, the essence of the teachings, it, it, it added, again, this uh, whole richness to experience in this way. And so I'm offering that same possibility in my own very modest way, that as you, uh, you uh, expand your idea of practice to the very level of understanding, that, that understanding is to be practiced. So the, the first noble truth, the practice, is that it's to be understood. One is, one is to penetrate it, one's to have the felt sense. The second noble truth is that there is a cause of suffering. And again, we reflect on that, which we will do together. And then uh, there's a different instruction. Here, it goes a whole nother level of asking something of us. It asks us to abandon the cause of suffering. So, uh, I remember this so well in, in, in that very first retreat, because I'd never heard the Four Noble Truths presented this way. And so with the first insight of the second noble truth, that, that there's a cause of suffering, and the, the cause is clinging, tanha, thirst, this grasping mind, this wanting. And there's three kinds of this. They're wanting sense pleasure. We all know wanting sense pleasure, right? How many times have you had a, a wanting sense pleasure which you turned into a fantasy or a complaint or something? We all do this on our retreats. So that's the first kind of wanting. 
And it's not just that it passes through our mind. We really want it. <laughs> you know, we we uh, idealize it. We reify it. We make it a, if only, then I would be happy. And then the second kind of, of tanha, thirst, clinging, is wanting to become something that we're not in this moment. We're wanting to have a calm mind, or we're wanting to, to, to be more uh, in, in concentration, or we're wanting, we're wanting the, the mind to be more clear so we could have insight. Or in our life, we're wanting what it is we don't have. We're wanting something, and we're caught in that wanting. And caught meaning, again, this reifying, this making it so special that it's actually pulling us out of this moment, making discontent in this moment. Discontent that's not inherently in the moment, but it is our wanting it to be other that is causing the discontent. And we can watch this. This is the beauty of practice. We can watch it. It's easy to prove for ourselves. You don't have to take anybody's word for it. And then the third kind of this of this tanha, this thirst, is not wanting to be. So um, I use this example of um, not wanting to be in the dental chair at a certain moment, not wanting to be on the airplane at the tarmac for that second hour you're waiting for clearance, not wanting to be. And uh, many interesting reflections about this third kind of, of uh, tanha, but that's not our purpose this evening, but relates to a lot of psychology, that third type of, 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 of clinging that's not wanting to be. It's so, uh, uh, it's so woven in that oftentimes we really miss it, that we're not wanting to be. We will be acting as though we don't want to be, but it never occurs to us that, oh, this is just not wanting to be that we're rejecting this moment. We're demanding it be otherwise in that way. It's easier for us to see what we want to be. It's, it's, it's easier to spot that for most of us. You might be different. But, uh, but this not wanting to be is trickier. So these are, these are, the, these are the three that relate uh, to our relationship to dukkha. The, the sense pleasure. So we're wanting, in terms of the first kind of dukkha, the dukkha that comes from the dukkha dukkha that comes from physical and emotional pain and so forth, we're wanting sense pleasure, and uh, the the sense of loss and all of that. We're not wanting to know. We're not wanting to know that loss, and then we can see that we're clinging. We don't want things to change if we if if we have them the way we want them. We don't want them to change, and we particularly don't want them to change without our having a say in them, the way they do. You may have noticed. We don't want that. And our nervous system doesn't want it. Our very ego structure doesn't want it. It's, it's too hard on that ego structure. Like, how can I take care of this person if all these things are changing all the time? It's, just, it's, it's, it's at a nervous system level, this, this, this experience. And then the, uh, the, the fact that there's, uh, that there's always this... Uh, uh, insubstantiality to the whole thing. Not wanting to be that insubstantiality, wanting it to, to be substantial. I, I want to get, a, a, I want to get 
uh, uh, freedom. So that that won't be changing at all, and then I can I can be without ever knowing without ever knowing we're having that feeling. When we look at it, we see that this wanting mind becomes a problem not so much because the initial arising of desire, but our idealizing the desire. That is where the clinging comes in. The Venerable Samedo says that desire is a natural energy of this realm. And it's our clinging to it, it's our idealization that it causes us to to hold on to something. So here's a clock, and useful to know what time it is. But if I hold on to this clock, even though it's worthwhile to have a clock to know what time it is, you don't want me to go on till 10 o'clock tonight, so you're happy for me to have a clock. But if I'm holding on to it, it starts to be dukkha. You can imagine if for the next hour I'm holding my arm like this, dukkha's going to arise. This is a literal acting out of what we do mentally, emotionally, and, and, and again in, in the in the head center and the heart center, where we we uh, we we where our wanting is so strong, it defines our story, and and so we see things. We we have a story about our wanting mind. Our wanting mind's making up a story. It would be nice. It would be nice if uh, if I didn't have a cold. It would be nice. But if I make up a story about it, then I'm going to suffer a whole nother level. Otherwise, it's just a cold. It's dukkha. But it's not more than dukkha. It's just dukkha. When your mind is restless, it's just restless. But if, if it's unacceptable in this moment that your mind is restless, then you're into a second level of suffering. What's uh, in one teaching is called the second dart, or sometimes the second arrow, where we where it's we have something that's wrong, and then we we double down on it in relation to our not wanting it to be. So we open to this as practice that we we open to it as practice, can I abandon clinging temporarily? Just this very moment. This is the practice part of the second noble truth. The invitation is to abandon the cause of clinging, to abandon the tanha, to abandon thirst. It doesn't mean that we have to not have a preference. Preference is going to arise. It's the attachment to the preference that causes the story. Um, back in the uh, early 80s, I guess, I was sitting a series of retreats at uh, IMS. And um, in those days, there was, um, there was uh, oftentimes scarcity around uh, various uh, meal times. And one of the scarcities was around bananas. 
And um, the, the kind of implied teaching was that if, you, if you're in line and there's a banana there, you cut and take half of it or something, but you don't take the whole banana. Some people did that and some didn't. You know, this is, this is the way it worked. And uh, uh, on retreat in those years, I would really crave banana. Banana and, of all things, green vegetables like spinach or something like this. These were my two. But it was, had to do with my body, what my, you know, my imbalances in my body. And so uh, one of my early morning practices, I love the first sit in the morning like we have here for that hour, and then we go to breakfast. And then I, would, I, I, I didn't rush to be at the front of the line, but I didn't be last either. I wanted to give myself a chance to have one of those bananas. And then I would watch my reaction as, as people were taking a whole banana or half a banana and, and so forth. And um, I worked at this over and over again till I found space that if someone took the last banana, the whole banana, <laughs> the preference just didn't get met. It didn't get met. This little simple practice around the banana was really like cutting through to the Dhamma. What would be your equivalent here on this retreat? That where you, around your desire, around your not wanting something to be the way it is, you're wanting to become something, what would be, what would be an equivalent for you of that? Where you could just see it as a preference. And sometimes, by the way, it could be very skillful. It's skillful when we're, we're more collected, unified mind. We're more concentrated. That's skillful. But even a wholesome goal like that, a wholesome desire, if the wholesome desire is clung to, then it leads to dukkha. It leads to suffering. And it often, in, in our daily lives, leads to unskillful behavior of speech or action. So we, we take our life here on retreat and we open to it as a means of practice in this way. There is dukkha. Okay, I wish to recognize that there's dukkha. I want to know it just as it, just so I get used to recognizing it. I'm not, I don't have to do anything about it. This is the first noble truth. All I'm supposed to do is understand it, penetrate it, fill the ouch of it. Okay, I can do that. Okay, now here I am, and I'm seeing my wanting mind, or this kind of wanting mind. Boy, I'm really clinging to this, clinging to some story from the past that happened, you know, last year or five years ago or something like this or that you're dealing with a health condition you do not want, and here it is, but that's your health condition. And so now I've got this next level of practice. I'm just as best I am able, as best I am able, as best I am able. Mantra, mantra. <laughs> I'm to abandon this, this, this clinging, this craving, as best I am able. Seems doable, doesn't it? Just to note that, that you can, I assume that uh, everyone in here a, a certain amount of time notices when they're clinging, notices when there's attachment. So there you are, and you just turn to this as practice.
Oh, so can, can I let loose of this clinging? It will stay around maybe because it's my preference, but I don't have to cling to it. I did not have to suffer because I didn't get the banana. There was dukkha because I didn't get the banana, right? But I didn't suffer, if you see that distinction. I did, I, it, was, it ceased to be suffering, although I still had the preference. Again, looking for those, uh, those opportunities in your life here on retreat where you can uh, meet your experience in present time or about the past or about the future with, with, uh, with treating it as practice, not resulting, but practice, practice. It's much more interesting to be practicing. Resulting creates all this tension. Am I getting it right? I think I got it right. Well, no, maybe I didn't get it right. Or well, All of this endless, you know, revisiting ourselves. But we don't have to do that if we're just practicing. We're just practicing. Maybe I got it right. Maybe I didn't. Eventually it'll all become more clear. I know that because practice brings more clarity. Just as you learn to play the piano, as you practice and practice, you become more skilled at playing the piano. So it is with mindfulness. So it is with the qualities of the heart. When we are being mindful, deliberate, have intention in the way we practice. So this is, this is the second noble truth. The third noble truth is that there is a cessation of, of all of this. There is cessation. There's a, there arises an end of this tanha, of this thirst. The practice part of this is that it is, that it is, it is to be realized in time. It's realized so we can't go out and practice insights. You can't co- come into the beginning of the sit, stopping there, doing, going, I'm going to sit down and have three or four insights now. It's not possible. And yet we can sort of fall into like some sort of an attitude like, yeah, I'm supposed to be, this is Vipassana, so I'm supposed to be having insight. What we can do is we can set up conditions that are favorable in our practice. And we can maintain those conditions as best we're able. As best we're able. And that allows us, that allows us to practice. And then as we practice, uh, when conditions are right, these insights will arise. They genuinely will. Small ones, large ones, things that are personal to us, things that are universal, the very insights the Buddha taught, Insights will arise, these understandings, like a flash of lightning, like an aha moment. Oh, a quick recognition. Oh, or a, a quick letting go, where it's suddenly I've been holding and let go. So that we, the, the, uh, we're cultivating, uh, we're, 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 we're cultivating, as we'll hear in a moment, through the Eightfold Path, but this, the, the realizations just, that they have to come as they come, these insights. The fourth noble truth is that, that there is a path to the end of suffering. That there is a way through all of this. As we, as we look at this path, it is a single path. 
and it's it's not it's not it's not a, uh, a eight it, it's not eight paths it's a single it's a single path that we are walking and there are these eight folds or eight aspects it's as though you folded up a blanket and you it was had all these different folds and it gave you your support for your sitting or for your knee or something but it's one blanket so it is that it's one path it's not it's not eight paths it's not eight different things but there are eight practice there's different aspects of it and they're divided into a wisdom part which is right right understanding right view wise view and, and wise intention so wise view wise intention that's the wisdom part and then there's a lived part that relates to our taking the precepts of right speech and right action and right livelihood which is the lived part the sila part the ethical part of having of living a life where one's available to find freedom very practical in this way and then there is the practice part of what's called samadhi which is made up of right effort and right mindfulness and right concentration and so these uh, the, the, all of these are to be cultivated the path is to be cultivated we're to we're to uh, we're to be deliberate in, uh, in uh, the clarifying our understanding as practice, not like I'm supposed to deliver this much of new understanding. But, uh, but I'm cultivating understanding. I know here I am, you know, this, this sits not going so well, but I'm still available for understanding, a deeper understanding to arise to my view, to get more clarity. Even among a, a sit that's, that's just uh, where the mind's fuzzy or something. We, because we've got this orientation to, to our practice that we are about practice in this way. And the same with wise intention. Uh, uh, you'll hear much more about intention, but uh, the, the, uh, the intention is this very moment. What is my intention right now it's very immediate, at least this is the way I understand it. I went all over Thailand asking different ajans about wise intention being in this very moment. And they all said, yes, why do you keep asking this question? But uh, Because it seems so important to me to make that distinction. So that there's, that's the wise intention. And then, then the, 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 here, starting with our speech, one of the things that I would ask you to consider you know, because we've taken this wonderful vow of silence. And so therefore we're not doing harmful speech externally. But what about our internal speech? Are you at times unskillful in how you address yourself internally? Is, is it, would you, if this were your friend, you were saying that thing too, would you say that to your friend? So often we don't treat ourselves as though we're a friend to ourselves. We can fall into our judging mind, good, bad, that's judging. We can fall into our comparing mind, better than, worse than, better than, worse than yesterday, better than, worse than the person sitting next to me who is so darn still all the time, or fixing mind. If I can just get this right, we so fall into that. The Buddha was so... Uh, clear about 
the, the danger of comparing mind, that he said, neither better than, worse than, or the same as. Stay out of the neighborhood. It's just not a healthy neighborhood for us. And so being interested in right speech and in relation to internal speech. And then with, uh, with uh, right action in our yogi jobs, in our opening and closing the doors in, in the dorms so that we don't disturb those around us. Not in this like, oh, I've got to be this little quiet mouse kind of way. But common sense, just being mindful, just being alert enough to notice. Because if we're alert enough, we're not going to slam the door. And yet we slam the door because we tune out, right? We just do. And so we, we a chance to practice here on retreat what we will much more generally practice in daily life in terms of the Eightfold Path. Yogi jobs, going in and out of this, how we are interacting you know, with each other throughout the time in our non-intrusive way. And, and then with uh, right, right livelihoods, not uh, the thing here at this point in time, but with right, with right effort, right effort is uh, uh, taking a degree of responsibility when we have choice. If I open to this fantasy, I know I'm going to get lost in it. Oh, but it's such a good fantasy. Yeah, but I'm going to get lost. Averting when we can to when the mind's going to go someplace that we already know it's not skillful. And if we're already there, to move away from it, if we can, as best I am able. Your mantra. There will be a test afterwards. (laughs) And then uh, moving towards that, which is wholesome. And, uh, and if, if the mind's doing well, don't get so ambitious that we pull ourselves away. So the, it's, if things are really steady and all of this. Oh, I wonder if I could now go to First Jhana, you know, this, that wanting, that, that some sort of pulling us out of the moment. No, just, just staying where it's wholesome, not let our ambition get carried away. Or things are going well, and then we suddenly start imagining how, you know, I could really do this. I could bring this into my work, or maybe I want to be a teacher. Or maybe I'm going to, you know, there it goes. Ah, oh, you know, avoiding that kind of thing when we can, when we can avoid. So uh, with the... Um, with the, uh, the, the way Analia, the Venerable Analia, talks about this same 12 insights, He's, he likes to say that what is, what, is to be, what is to be understood in the first noble truth, that practice of the first noble truth, is the five aggregates that this, the moment's made up of, of this uh, contact through consciousness, which we will talk more about. The contact, the, the perception, feeling, mental impression, and uh, that, it's, that, that seeing that, that a moment's composed is what helps us see the dukkha, that, that that's, that's the way he suggests that. And that then what is to be, that what's to be uh, 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 abandoned is the, uh, the, uh, the craving and the ignorance. So the second noble truth practice is letting go of ignorance and craving. And that's his way of talking about these 12 insights. And then the third, the, the third noble truth is what's to, be, what's to be realized 
is, is uh, uh, knowledge and freedom. That knowledge and freedom are to be realized. And then with the, the cultivation of the path, it's calm, samatha, and insight, vipassana, that's to be cultivated. Again, the way he teaches this. My aspiration in doing this with you this evening is for you to open in this direction, not for you to retain a particular piece of the teaching, but rather for you to uh, have uh, this larger wise view, this more expanded wise view of the Four Noble Truths. And when you think about that the Satipatthana ends with the Four Noble Truths, that the Four Noble Truths are considered to contain all the teachings. And I can go on and on with that list. It is well worth our while, I would suggest, for us to really have a, a more intimate experience for ourselves of the Four Noble Truths. In general, my experience is that as students, as practitioners, we tend to think we know dukkha because we've had a lot of discomfort, of, of unsatisfactoriness in our life. So therefore, we assume we know dukkha. And there's kind of a moving on, you know. We move on to the second noble truth, third noble truth, fourth noble truth. That's not my experience in my own practice. And um, uh, uh, for myself, once I took it as practice, I really said, okay, I'm beginner mind here, beginning mind, beginner's mind, and I really want to start with dukkha. And those, those first three insights, do, do I really know what dukkha is? And uh, do I really, do I really, do I, have, I really have a felt sense of dukkha? Is there just certain kinds of dukkha? Or am I knowing the dukkha or am I knowing my attitude, my reactions to the dukkha? Those were the kinds of things I was interested in. And um, when, I, when I wrote Dancing with Life, based on the Venerable Tomatoes' teachings of these insights, um, I, I, I did my best to encourage this. And I encourage this with you here this evening that you really get interested in dukkha. I, am, uh, I have the aspiration that later, I will, in, in a further talk, I'll get to talk about the subtle aspects of dukkha and in our lives and like what it really means in living life, you know, daily life. What is this dukkha? Like in each of, each of us have a life and like what is this, what's the implication of this dukkha? It's very interesting. And the Buddha's teaching has this um, um, pointing to uh, a much more subtle meaning to life uh, if, if, we, if we are interested in that or inclined to explore that way. But we can't do that without having some degree of intimacy with this dukkha. So from my perspective, that you, that you practice feeling the ouch, that you practice recognizing dukkha, and that you abandon clinging 
when you get the chance. And oftentimes you won't even remember. You won't even recognize the clinging sometimes, but sometimes you'll recognize it, but you will just completely forget about the idea of abandoning it. It, the, it will never come up like, well, do I have any choice here? So the, the idea is we put in, well, let's see if I can remember some of the time that I might have some choice, just a little choice, to abandon clinging in this moment. It may come back in the next moment. I'm sitting there complaining about, uh, about something in my sit. Do I have to cling? Do I have to do this complaining this moment? Oh no, not this moment. Oh, here it's back again. Those little, uh, there's, there, I call them interrupts. That those little moments when we stop feeding cleaning, they are so wholesome, you just can't measure how wholesome it is. Every time you interrupt clinging, you are creating little karmic seeds that will blossom later on in your practice. It is so wholesome to practice this second noble truth of abandoning in this way. Every time, just for a moment, we let loose. Just now. And again, we don't go through with bother judging about that we're clinging. That's, that's, that's just a reactive mind state. It's just chatter. Just views and opinion. But the recognition, oh, clinging. Can I, can I let go? Can I just put it down for a moment? Practice. It's just practice. Let's sit for a moment. This is from Lao Tzu. Always we hope someone else has the answer. Some other place will be better. Some other time it will turn out. This is it. No one else has the answer. No other place will be better. And it has already turned out. At the center of your being, you have the answer. You know who you are, and you know what you want. There's no need to run outside for better seeing, no need to peer from a window. Rather, abide at the center of your being, for the more you leave it, the less you learn. Search your heart and see the way to do is to be. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.